Media Podcast. This is uh, Mukunda Raghavan, and I'm joined today with Dr. Pankaj Jain of the University of North Texas, where he teaches Hindu and Jaina studies. And along with that, he has uh, recently jo- uh, started a new organization called uh, Center for Indic Studies. Is that correct, Dr. Jain? Yeah, American Academy of Indic Studies. Yeah, American Academy of Indic Studies. Um, so, uh, Dr. Jain, uh, I kind of brought you on the program today to discuss a few things. Uh, you're our first inter- interview with uh, anybody, so uh, congratulations on that, <laughs> if that's any sort of uh, accolade. Um, it's not, but it's uh, it's more of a, it's, uh, it's our introductory. So it's good to have you on because I think um, one of the big topics we're discussing today is the ecology um, and the nature of, 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 I mean, especially recently with the UN report with uh, climate change. Yeah. I think what you're going to say today is actually have a lot of uh, impetus for mm-hmm. for people. So before we get into that, um, can you give us a little bit of background on on yourself, uh, where you come from, your education, and 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 so on? Yeah, as you said, I'm an associate professor of uh, philosophy and religion in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Texas in Dallas area. Uh, I've been here for the last eight years. Uh, I taught, uh, before coming here, I taught at NC State. Before that, I finished my PhD in the Department of Religious Studies. Uh, my topic was uh, Indian culture, Hinduism, and ecology. Uh, before that, I did my master's from uh, Columbia University, New York, in religion, Indic religions. Uh, and then before that, I was in IT. I was an IT, IT professional working for uh, different <laughs> consulting companies. and uh, really? <laughs> Yeah, for, for clients like IBM and Lucent and AT&T and all that. Wow. Uh, before that, I was in India, also worked in IT industry and had a BE in computer science. And bef- uh, had my, I was born in Rajasthan, a place, small town called Pali near Jodhpur, where I was born and did my schooling and everything there in Rajasthan and did my engineering in co- computer science from Karnataka and then came. After a few years working in IT industry in India, I came to this country. In 1996. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a really interesting background. I mean, so I, I'm going to ask a few questions about this if yeah. you don't mind. Um, so you were born and raised in Rajasthan, right? And is uh, is your last name Jane? Is that pretty typical of Rajasthanis? Uh, from what I understood, mostly Gujaratis had that last name. No, so no, I was actually Jane last name. Okay, <laughs> question is small, but answer can be very long. Long. I'll try to con- I'll try to be as brief as possible. Sure. Jain is a common last name for people who are born in Jain tradition. Uh-huh. So many North Indians have this last name. Also, even in South India, sure. not just in Gujarat, but also Rajasthan, Delhi, UP, Karnataka, wherever Jains are. Jainism is one of the most uh, ancient religions in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. In addition to Hindu, Hinduism and Buddhism started, of course, in India. Jainism also started started in India. And uh, it's similar to many things in Jainism are similar to Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, so I was born in that tradition. That's why my last name is Jain. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I did not know uh, uh, that many people had the last name Jain. That's, yeah. uh, that's actually really interesting. Um, so you did your schooling there, and okay. were you at the, were you educated in in Sanskrit or the traditions at the time, or was it like a, a later interest that you got into? No, Sanskrit actually. Uh, since childhood, I had deep interest in literature, literature, history, social studies, Hindi language, and Sanskrit language. Also, I had uh, starting from my sixth grade in Rajasthan. Mm-hmm. So I studied Sanskrit in sixth grade, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and then twelfth. So wow! I, several years. 
and then of course hindi is very close to sanskrit in terms of vocabulary and even in some aspects of grammar and so on uh, so i had that interest since childhood that's why i could switch from computer science to religion uh, in america when i came here because of that passion that i had since childhood okay so if i understand so you you studied sanskrit you're interested in literature but then you decided to go do computer science and information technologies yes. in college in india <laughs> in india that time especially when i was growing up 70s 80s uh, the trend was and probably still is that if you are a male child in india yeah you have only three career choices for the most part you could become an engineer or a doctor or a chartered accountant <laughs> my father was an uh, was an engineer he just retired recently he was still working so following the footsteps of my father i also mm-hmm. my my brother my cousins everybody is in as an engineer in our extended family sure so, so when then you you went to uh, college got engineering degree and then uh, you worked for tech companies for how many years in india i worked for almost 4 5 years and another company in hyderabad in mumbai and i even taught computer science to engineering college in jodhpur in rajasthan oh wow uh, so i been i worked in rajasthan mumbai and hyderabad before i okay. yeah. and then and then you moved to the us or did you uh, go back to school in india itself no i just uh, yeah be computer science from india then worked yeah. in it industry in india yeah then came here straight away on h1b visa in 1996 okay and then you continued to work here for a few more years in the tech industry yeah so what what kind of prompted you to take that like yeah. shift from tech into the yeah, liberal uh, arts hindu studies uh, leaving india in 96 95 96 uh, i started feeling that i'm going to miss my heritage forever i'm going to the heritage that uh, has given me so much in terms of the language the texts then music and so on uh, and uh, so uh, as i came here i joined uh, i was part of a sp- some couple of spiritual organi- organizations and that sort of re- rekindled my fire and i okay. decided to take it take the full plunge and uh, just renounce the it career completely and became a full time student at columbia and that really fired my passion even further and wow. then i kept applying for phd and i got into phd with fund scholarship and everything at iowa university of iowa so it could it worked out in, in the end it was a lot of struggle a lot of hard work uh but it worked out uh, with with uh, i guess it that was my destiny and you know yeah you so, go you know get the help from nature cosmos when you help <laughs> yourself you put all that energy into something and it it, it it's finally accomplished with all all the hard work yeah so was there a moment like when you were still might be professional where i don't know maybe you were reading a book or you're you're yeah. reading something and then suddenly you just thought you know what i want to do this yes 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 yeah definitely i was i was observing a lot of uh, there was some controversies among indian uh, indian americans on one side and uh, all the misportrayal or uh, in some unintended misportrayal of indian traditions in academia and i thought uh, with my passion and interest in sanskrit language and indic traditions maybe i can try to do my part to correctly portray indic traditions and indic culture so i'm guessing this was during the time of the california book uh, textbook no, issue that, no that came even later uh, okay. i was uh, an observer of these controversies since 1990 1998 1999 uh, when kali's child book came out Uh, yes uh, about uh, paramahamsa ramakrishna uh, uh, ramakrishna yeah yeah 
around that time, yeah. Around, uh, that was, I think, 19. Uh, I started observing those things from 1998-1999 onwards. Yeah, and then I got my green card in 2002, and then I became a student at Columbia. So, yeah. You know, it's I, the moment you mentioned Columbia, I, I thought about something. I think we actually connected at some point uh, way back in 2000 because um, I, I was I, I remember having a couple emails back and forth with you because I was in oh. New York at the same time. Um, and I think you were just doing your PhD program, or start your master's MD program. Um, and I, I, I don't recall the, the full uh, conversation, but it was about like the Indic texts and stuff like that uh, yeah, at that time. From uh, August 2002 to May 2003, just less than a year. Oh, in, in Columbia? Yeah. Okay, so I think this was right after when you were doing your PhD. You were asking for some information. Yeah, some from uh, 2004 to 2008. Uh, yeah, that's right around the time. I, I I totally recall. I think it was like 2006 or something, 2007, where uh, I had some communi uh, communications with you. But I mean, that's another that's another topic. Um, but yeah, so that's a really interesting um, uh, background. So what did you do your uh, PhD thesis on or in? Yeah, so PhD thesis. I decided to focus on three communities uh, that that uh, have been uh, working for their natural resources. They have been saving their environmental resources for centuries, uh, not because of climate change, not because of, not because they watched Al Gore's documentary, Inconvenient Truth, <laughs> because, just because their gurus or their scripture, their texts have mentioned some nice things about the environment that be vegetarian, be protectful, uh, be protectors of uh, flora and fauna in your areas. Okay. That's why they, Think it's all their part of their dharma and their traditions, so they have been doing these things. So those three communities became the focus of my PhD dissertation. That became part of that became my first book. Okay, so we'll we'll jump into that in a few minutes. I just want to spend a little bit more time on your background. Um, so now you're at the University of North Texas, right? Yes. yes. So what is it you're teaching there? I teach like, uh, culture and ecology of India, South Asia, Asia, religion and ecology of Asia, uh, world religions. Okay. Uh, history of uh, philosophy and religion in India. Uh, this spring, I'll be teaching American religions for the first time. Just wow. Like, uh, you know, Amer Ameri just to focus on American, American religions. So Hinduism in America, Buddhism in America, Christianity, of course, in America, Judaism, Islam in America. Sure. I'll be teaching then online course on world religions. I'll be teaching. Uh, I'll be teaching a full-fledged course on Jainism, also third or fourth time here in. Wow. Uh, so. For your Jainism class or even your Hinduism classes, how many people would you probably get in your class? Right. So here, uh, many people are not aware probably that there is yeah. a BA in religion in many American universities. There is a, you can have a major in religion. Yeah. If you have a major in religion when you are doing BA in religion. You need to take all the courses on religion. Right. People take uh, courses on world religions. People take courses on my, my courses such as on Indian religions uh, and so on. Okay. So there are many. It's one of the fastest growing majors in America uh, on religion. BA. Oh wow. Yes. Okay. So, is there a particular class that you wish you could teach that you haven't taught yet? Um, no, I think I've taught. I've been teaching now for last more than a decade. Yeah. At UNT and, and NC State, and I've been. I have taught Bollywood. I've taught Jainism, Hinduism, of course, Buddhism, uh, Sanskrit language, Hindi language. World religions, Asian religions, Asian history. I think I've covered them all. A pretty big gamut. <laughs> That's good. Um, so, uh, 
do you did you did you happen to go to the 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 conference in Chicago this year? Uh, oh yeah, I went I went to not the World Hindu Congress, but there was okay. second congress just after that. Okay. To a conference called ISOL, Integrating Spirituality on uh, with leadership, organi- organizational leadership. So I went. Okay, interesting. Conference. Interesting. That was right on 9/11, uh, September 11th uh, this year in Chicago when. The, when Swami Vivekan had given his historic lecture in 1893. Okay. Very day we were at that con, uh, in Chicago. Oh, that was like the day after the World Hindu Congress conference, yes. right? Yes. Okay. World Excellent. Uh, was uh, already over by September, uh, I think, 9th. Okay. We started from the September 11th, right, uh, on that same day. Yes. Sure. Um, so I, I, I think I just want to delve a couple more questions into the background, then we'll jump into the book and your thesis. So as you indicated, you're Jain. So how, but you also teach Hindu studies, and I'm, I'm guessing that you spent a lot of time going through the Hindu texts and so on and so forth. What do you see as the relationship between the two uh, faiths? And additionally, like, um, what aspects or, or do you take of both in your own personal life or or what it is. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon in India that uh, you don't really make watertight compartments between Hinduism and Jainism, yeah. or Hinduism or, and Buddhism, or even, uh, and so on, which is very uh, different in Abrahamic religions. If you are a Jew, you cannot be a Christian. If you are a Muslim, you cannot be a Jew, and vice versa. Although all three are Abrahamic religions, right? But the three Dharmic traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, I think, are much more open and uh, there's much, a lot of give and take happening, a lot of overlaps, the idea of karma, idea of reincarnation and so on. So in my own family, actually, my father uh, prefers to believe that he's a Jain. My <laughs> mother thinks she is a Hindu, but <laughs> are very open and, uh, you know, receptive of, of each other's uh, faiths or practices. They both will go to Buddhist, you know, Hindu temples, Jain temples. And so I've been, when I was growing up, I was going to both the temples, Hindu temples, right. Jain temples, and I've seen my grandmother practicing Jainism very, very strictly uh, in, that, in the sense that she would not even take a single drop of water before going to the Jain temple every day. She would walk uh, walk for a couple of miles and go to the Jain temple and then start her day. So I, so I was growing up in, a, in this mixed heritage of Hindu and Jain traditions and philosophies and practices. So uh, so I, I consider both are my, my tradition. I belong yeah. to both. That's good. So I've been practicing and teaching very comfortably both of these traditions for the last uh, several years now. There are a lot of similarities, like I said, karma idea, reincarnation, yeah. uh, idea of soul, of course, idea of compassion and nonviolence towards animals and plants, uh, idea of vegetarianism. Uh, many Hindus are still, for the most part, they are veg- in India especially, even though Hindus who might say that they are non-vegetarians, but their sure. main diet, staple diet is still dal, roti and chawal. Right? Yeah. Lentils, uh, rice, and wheat. You know, meat can be an occasional diet, but most part, I think, India still consists of largest number of vegetarians in the world. Millions and millions of Indians, Hindus in India, and Jains, of course, are all vegetarians. So, several of such ideas are common in both Hindu and Jain uh, traditions and, and people. So, in, in your region, in uh in Rajasthan, was there a large Jain population there too? Yes. Because yes. I, I I know there's. Sadly, you know, much of India since since the time of the uh, you know, sec- the first millennium uh, CE, there's been less and less Jains spread out across yes. India. They've been only in pockets. So right. I, I I I wasn't sure how how big the community there was. Yes, yes, uh, Jains are uh, pretty significant in some pockets of Rajasthan and Gujarat and Karnataka and Maharashtra. 
uh, some even smaller pockets in Delhi and UP, but Gujarat has, I guess, largest number of Jains, but then uh, then comes Rajasthan and then Maharashtra and, and Karnataka. Yeah, because yeah, it, it's so, so fascinating to me. Like I, I even when you look at old Tamil literature, right? Like Salat Padigharam and 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 the sequel that comes from that. It's th- many people think they're Jain texts, right? Because uh, the uh, uh, the the heroine becomes a Jain monk at the end of of the text, and and oh, I, and you, you don't see that much of of Jainism in the South anymore. I mean, you do in Karnataka, yes, you're correct. But it's funny that the that so much of of Jain culture moved down to the south, but then they just kind of disappeared over over the millennia. Right, right. Like I think what happened, as I mentioned earlier, that because of this very open boundaries between Hinduism and Jainism, for especially, I think most even in Gujarat this is happening as we speak. Several Jains are just Jains in Gujarat for the namesake. Yeah. For the most part, they are Hindu. They go to Dandia and Garba and Navratri and go to Vaishnav temples and Vaishnavite practices. So many Jains, even in Gujarat, have become more Hindus than, than they are Jains. But, so, and then, of course, they will go to Jain temples also. But even inside Jain temples, especially the Shvetambar sect, yeah. the Jain practices that are happening, so-called Jain practices that are happening inside the Jain temples, some of them at least, are really based on Hindu ideas of Arti and fire sure. ritual and, you know, lamp. And so it's very, very uh, Hinduized Jains. Uh, even today in Gujarat. So that's probably what happened in Tamil Nadu. Yeah. Many Jains became Hindus and they didn't even know that that was happening because of overarching or very dominant and even more Hindu ideas are, are more popular, more easier to practice in some yeah. way than Jain ideas. Jainism is you have to strictly follow the life that my grandmother le- led. Yeah. Not even water be- before going to the temple uh, and renouncing a lot of uh, your favorite food, uh, even among vegetarian uh, items. Yeah. So to renounce all the root vegetables, no yes, that's right. No onion, no garlic, no radish, no uh, carrot. So no no eggplant. So there's a lot of restrictions uh, in Jain diet, for example. So yeah, but the, is more common and more, more popular, but, probably one of the reasons. But I, I think it's interesting cause I, how you say that, that the Hinduization happens because. Yeah. Like, for, from its core, both Hinduism and Jainism are so intertwined with each other, right? Like, with Arishanami is, is Krishna's cousin, and, and they have, like, this, like, relationship of... It's it, it, so, like, switching back and forth in many ways seems... I mean, probably very fluid that people, like you said, people don't think about it. And then even the dietary habits, right? Like, a lot of onions, garlic are not considered sattvic. So, yeah. like, a lot of Vaishnavites won't eat, like, onion, garlic, and this yeah. and that. So there's like this, there's, there is this syncretic nature between the oh, two. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But it, I, I, I always think it's like, because uh, in the U.S., it, yeah. I think uh, while while the Jains do have, uh, uh, they'll do arati, they do raskarba, do all that. Yeah. They they have a very unique Jain identity in, in the yeah. U.S., which I don't think is as strong in India. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, it's becoming a stronger identity. In India, as we speak, because okay. recently, just a couple of years back, Jainism has been declared officially as a minority religion for the first time in the history of India. Now, uh, so uh, so Jains have, are, I guess, they are trying to become even more conscious of their identity as a separate minority religion. With all what do you the think about that? That come for a minority religion in India. So, I mean, what's your thoughts on 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 that? Uh... This, I guess the separation from the larger whole, like, cause a lot of, a lot of groups are doing that too, right? The Lingites or in yeah. Karnataka were doing it and there's a few other ones doing it too. Right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's all more, mostly politicized, uh, forms of, uh, these smaller groups, uh, like Lingas is totally Hindu 
part of Hindu tradition for thousands of years. It's a Shiva tradition. Yeah. Uh, suddenly they say we are a separate minority religion. Doesn't make any sense. But Jainism is a bit more uh, different from uh, Lingayat yeah. phenomenon because Jainism is a is a distinct philosophy, distinct cosmology. Yes. Distinct distinct set of uh, gods and goddesses. There are no gods and goddesses. Yeah. Uh, technically speaking, they are all 24th Sankaras and there is a separate time cycle and so on. Separate text, separate language even. But with, even with all that, I think it's uh, not uh, not 100% right to to say that they are separate religions. Hinduism and Jainism. Religion itself is a Western idea. There is no such thing as religion in Indian language. None of the Indian languages have the word any word anything that close comes close to religion. Uh, there is no such word. The words that are really used all languages Tamil and Telugu and Sanskrit and Hindi and Assamia or Bengali all relig- all the languages have the term dharma. Dharma is not religious. Dharma means dharma means ethics. Dharma means cosmology and rhythm and and of course religion is part of it. But ethics, so many other things are in addition to religion is very restrictive term. Where like uh, in the beginning, like like we mentioned, yeah. Jews are not Christians. In that yeah. sense, religion is a very uh, concrete, crisp boundary line for Islamic right. religions. That's not the case in in India or even Asian traditions. Other Asian traditions also have very open boundaries. Like Shinto and Buddhist in Japan are very Similar phenomenon and Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism also very similar phenomenon in China. Sure. So it's very problematic to say that should Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism should be three separate religions in China. That would be, you know that would be so confusing that utterly wrong for China. Yeah. To say that Shinto and Buddhism are two separate religions in Japan would be utterly wrong for Japan. Similarly, to say that Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, or even uh, let's just yeah let's just say Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. Should they be three separate religions in India? That would be utterly wrong. Also, because there's so much give and take, so many common similar similar. Like for example, all Jains love to celebrate Diwali. They love yeah. to worship <laughs> Lakshmi. <laughs> Who doesn't want more Lakshmi? And, and even Saraswati. So those are Hindu goddesses, if you, you, you one might say, but they are part of the Jain tradition also because they are also associated with several Jain Tirthankaras. Padmavati. There is one of the most popular, prominent goddesses in the Jain tradition is Padmavati. Now, goddesses and gods are not really very common, not really officially to be worshipped in the in the temples. But these goddess goddesses are the guardian deities for the Tirthankaras. Oh, Tirthankaras are the most prominent uh, role models for Jains. But they have these associated gods and goddesses, those who come and protect. Uh, they uh, when they are doing meditation and doing doing all these austere practices. So Padmavati is associated with one of the Tirthankaras. And there are uh, now. Now you might one might ask that is this is this the same Padmavati for which the film Padmavat was man, was made and all kinds of controversies? Who knows? There might be the same. There might be some connection there. Right. Padmavati idea. Of, Padmavati became a Jain goddess probably around that same time. Interesting. When the Padmini uh, was entering the fire uh, sacrifice when Alauddin attacks. Who knows? I, I mean, there is no clear evidence for that. Right. But there might be uh, again. There might be some connections there. I mean, but 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 but, but Padmavati is also a name of Lakshmi too, right? So it's a. Uh, it, it, could it have been another form of Lakshmi that the Jains? Actually, uh, you're right. That could be true also. There is yeah. So all these again, yeah. these open boundaries, you know, always give and take. They're like Ganga and Yamuna of uh, of India. <laughs> That's right. Hinduism and Jainism, or you might say Vedic tradition and Shamana tradition. Yeah, Shamana I was about to say exactly the same, right? Tradition. So it's it's a. Uh, it's like a, I, 
I think the dating a lot of the, a lot of these texts or these traditions are probably very conservatively wrong, because in my head, a, probably a, J, a Jaina tradition has probably been alongside the Vedic traditions for yes. a very long time, right? Because as a Sharmana sect, you know, there's been like uh, along with the Jivikas and there are a few other ones, right? There's you have this the stream of other thought that yes. that were. I think the Upanishads were kind of going towards that, yes. but we're not fully right because it's the forest dwelling, the, the the people that decide to contemplate, that want to be away from the city and away from society because it allows your mind to be a little more expressive and, and connecting with the world, the, the universe. Yes. So I think these these Sharmana traditions were more ancient than we actually think they are. They're much more ancient. They did not start with Buddhism or Buddha, you know, Buddhism. or even Mahavira, right? Because Mahavira itself is is because the last one. We have clear evidence for a Tirthankar that is prior to Mahavira, that is Parshana, that is clearly established in archaeology also. Really? Uh, when was this established? I didn't know this. About 250 years before Mahavira. Oh, wow. Parshanath was 23rd Tirthankar. Yes. Mahavira was 24th Tirthankar. Mahavira is supposed to be, uh, at least for some part, he was contemporary of the Buddha. Yes. Buddhism, of course, started with the Buddha, but but Jainism did not start with Mahavira. We have Parshanath and 22 more Tirthankars before Parshanath. So there are 24 total Tirthankars in the Jain tradition, but we have two evidence of class two. That yeah. They yes. yes. Absolutely. You know, like I want to spend a lot more time talking about Jainism because I I love the the concepts of the Vasudeva, Pratyavasudeva, the Chakravarti. You know, those are ideas. I think like a lot a lot of Jains don't even know. Yeah. And I, I, it's just something I, I think it's really interesting and fascinating to, to discuss. But I don't know if we should do that now or set that like another conversation for Jainism. Yeah, whichever you, where you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we could come back to that okay. if, uh, at the end or maybe another conversation. But I really want to get into your book, your uh, Dharma and Ecology. So l l let's break it down. Let's first talk let's about. Cover off the book at least. I yes, yes, I, have, I, like, I have it too here. Oh, you have. So this is a book we, this, that was uh, actually it came out first edition came out in 2011. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's based on my PhD dissertation research. And oh, okay, you got, I got it. the hard copy. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, so as I was uh, trying to explain that uh, for my PhD research, uh, easier for me would have been to pick up a, some Sanskrit manuscript yeah. and translate it and be done with it. But I wanted something which is not just theoretical uh, or just not just philosophical, but some some research that is anthropological in nature, ethnographical uh, in, in, in my research methodology that I wanted to prefer because I wanted to show that it's not just in books. Yeah. Whatever we are saying about Hindu tradition, oh, this is great and that is great and we love nature and so on. Yes, but where is the evidence? So for evidence, we need to go and look at the communities, how they're living for these centuries. So I went back to India for my research, spent a lot of time in Rajasthan and Gujarat, observed Swadhyay communities and Vishnu uh, villages and Bhil villages in Rajasthan and Gujarat and MP border and took a lot of pictures, interviewed a lot of people and went to their temples and, and actually saw the, all these in action, how exactly they are trying to save their flora and fauna wherever they are. So very evidence-based research, not just theoretical and not just, you know, uh, ivory tower research or, or, sure. or, right? So it's very in the, from the ground report from the field. That okay. is, I wanted to do this kind of research where we can say, uh, with really with evidence that, that Hindu ideas have impacted the lives of millions of these people and they are trying to save their ecology. They are trying to save their 
environmental resources, not again, as I, as I said, not because they're worried about global warming, not as a reactionary force, True. but a very proactive measure because it's part of their dharma, it's part of their traditions. So, I, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the book. It was very illuminating. Cause I, I mean, I have no, I've heard of the Swadhyay community. I've been to a couple of the functions, but I didn't know, like, the, to the extent of, like, their various, uh, their uh, projects they're doing within the community. And, and the beach noise and the bills, uh, uh, I have, I have passing knowledge of not, I mean, it was really good to get that deep understanding of their, of their traditions and how those traditions have impacted not only their communities, but the, I guess the local ecosystem around where their communities are. So, I, I mean, before I want to get into talking about each of them, I, I think it's important to kind of break down your 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 title, right? Dharma and then ecology. So let's let, let's talk about what uh, the easier of the two is, which is ecology, and then we'll get into a little tougher of the uh, dharma. So, why ecology? Like, uh, can you give us a to kind of a definition of, of what you're meaning here? Yeah, study of the ecosystem, study of the uh, relationship of humans and their ecosystem is, uh, in a way, we can define ecology. Uh, so uh, now dharma, I choose the word dharma and ecology because I could have said religion and ecology, but yeah. again, religion is not is not a native term for Asian traditions, Indic traditions also. So I went with dharma and ecology. Now dharma, what I I chose because dharma comes from the root dhri, which means to sustain. Now sustain connects us with sustainability and sustenance. Right, mm. so dharma has this inbuilt notion of sustainability because dharma comes from the root dhri, which means to sustain. So that's why dharma itself, dharma already has this notion of sustaining the cosmic forces, sustaining the cosmic orders, and sustaining the human order, the human society. Right. Dharma, I think, makes perfect sense to title the book because it's all about sustainability. That's why the subtitle is Sustenance and Sustainability, Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities, Sustenance and Sustainability. Um, I'm, I'm the first one, uh, first author who really went and connected this, these two terms, dharma and sustainability. Sustainability is such a big word. Yeah. You forget that dharma itself means to sustain, right? In the Mahabharata and, and elsewhere, many other texts, dharma is defined as a force that sustains the cosmos and that sustains the human society. Absolutely. That's such a, such a title, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I mean, what you said there is a lot to unpack, right? Because it, 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 within dharma, there's also like rita, right? Which is which is which is your universal cosmic kind of order yes. in which dharma works within. Yes. Um, and then, so how? What? So I mean, it, it's weird because you're using the term both in the sense of religion, meaning mm. these particular groups and their practices and their traditions, but you're also using the term in the sense of like a moral imperative of some sort, right? Which is, which is, which can be very confusing to people that don't understand that the term has multiple wide meanings. Mm -hmm. So I, I think in the book you actually do a good job of, of breaking down when you mean dharma as a social group and their set of practices and their religion or their, their customs and then like what the moral imperative or the, 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 the dharma of their like, like what they're like, their their leader says or their their tradition says. Right, right, right. And then and then so so where I, I know it's not in the book as much, but where do you find mm -hmm. in in the Indian or the the I guess the Indic worldview where mm -hmm. does where does the nature of dharma and ecology actually connect? Before you get to your 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 examples of your your um your three communities, 
where do you see that originally coming from? And then like, like, what's the concepts that they actually bring to the table that, that, that we can discuss? That's a good question actually. Actually, and you already gave the answer when you already connected dharma with rhythm. Okay. Dharma makes its appearance ever, first time ever in any Hindu tradition or any Hindu text is the Rig Veda. Mm-hmm. Rig Veda Purush Sutta 1090 is the first time when we see the word dharma. Now, before the dharma word is used in the Rig Veda, the all over Rig Veda we find before dharma is mentioned, we find the word rhythm, which you already mentioned. Now, rhythm means as I define and what I learned from my PhD advisor, Professor Frederick Smith, very nice. He uh, is a scholar of Vedic rituals. Mm-hmm. He has spent a lot of time in Maharashtra and observing Vedic ritual. And he had a poster when I was a student at Iowa, I still remember. There were these Brahmins doing the rituals. Mm-hmm. And he had a subtitle there on the poster that maintaining the cosmic rhythm. <laughs> that cosmic rhythm with rhythm. <laughs> That's really cool. Right? So yeah. the belief or belief or the idea when they were doing rituals thousands of years back, our ancestors in Vedic times, when they are doing these yajnas, their idea was to maintain the cosmic rhythm. If we do our rituals, in, incidentally, that word ritual also connects with rite. Rite means ritual. So we do these rituals properly in perfect harmony and rhythm. Then we help maintain the rhythm of the sun, rhythm of the moon, rhythm mm-hmm. of the seasons. Rhythm of the planetary motions, rhythm. So all these cosmic rhythms or the rhythms of different cosmic forces like sun, moon, planets and whatnot, seasons and whatnot. Those are all in interlinked or interconnected with the rhythm of our rituals. So if we make any mistake in, in doing yajnas, mm-hmm. we are disturbing the cosmic forces. So we need to ask for forgiveness. We do, we, we need to do a special ritual to ask for any mistakes that we might have done. Why are we doing the yajna? That kind of interconnectedness they felt as they were doing these yajnas or Vedic rituals thousands of years back. Some, to me, appears as if it, it connects with the cosmic uh, uh, ecology is even more limited, uh, limited word, but I think cosmic rhythm. Cosmic is connected with rhythm and rhythm is replaced by dharma. Mm-hmm. Dharma already inbuilt notion that dharma has is the idea of cosmic rhythm, right? And that dharma is connected with the human dharma, manushya dharma. So manushya dharma is connected with the sorry dharma or the dharma of the sun, mm-hmm. dharma moon. Just as rhythm was connected with all these cosmic forces, if humans are doing their dharma properly in line with all the ethical ideas and so on, the not just economic, cosmic in harmony with natural forces. If we go against nature, we do think with nature. We are not only, but we will, and, and we are not only dis, uh, disturbing the health of our planet, mm-hmm. but we are disturbing the health of the entire cosmos. Right. Does it, does it make sense? No, totally. It, it totally. It, 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 oh, I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I mean, cause it's, uh, it, it reminds me of the one, something that Krishna said in the Bhagavad Gita, where he refers to those people who, uh, who take the, the offerings of the world, but don't uh-huh. give back to the devas, right? They, they, they're thieves. Yeah. It, it's the same. I'll recite the mantra for you. Yeah. shina santo, te sarva kil bishay, bhunjate te papa, 
ye pachanti atma karana you just said in english i said in yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, those who do yajnas and then eat their meals are fine but those who are eating only for themselves those who are uh, accepting food only for themselves are doing committing the extreme papa papa yeah. is sometimes constant but papa is evil action or, or yeah. wrong action basically so that's what you said so that's what, yeah go ahead so you no because I, I, uh, i mean I, I, i'm going on a few of the points but it, it reminds me again of uh of the sense that there we are not separated from this plane that we exist in and we're we're part of we have inherent duty i mean even if we want to take it practically right even corporations or corporate entities and human beings we don't exist in a vacuum we exist in this place where we have to give back and forth and you can't keep take 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 and yes. expect like it's going to keep being there it's going to be i'm resolved and i think that's where like this dharmic cycle is yes. really important as a but, concept and beyond that actually yes of course given given take and everything but even beyond that actually uh, as you know there are five elements in hindu traditions right which are those fire uh, earth water uh, air and space yes right? so these five space five elements are out in the nature panchamahabhutas yeah also inside our being so our five senses are connected with these five so the five elements are not just outside of us they are also inside of us right so when we mention space in these five elements space means the entire universe right yes other four are real, right here on the planet but when we say space we are connecting the entire cosmos the entire universe so it's not just about not just about the planet it's about the entire universe that is the idea of the rhythm rhythm or rhythm yeah rhythm i connect with rhythm and rhythm was replaced by dharma yes dharma of human being is not just for taking care of our own health or the health of our planet but the health of the entire universe everything is interconnected it's just something amazingly beautiful connection uh, idea connections are are so beautifully interlinked oh yeah elements and and the rhythm and and what not so going to your case studies let's start with the the oldest group that we have which i mean i, I guess the I, I, the beals would be the oldest group in terms uh, uh-huh. historically but i mean is there historical uh um evidence for uh, uh, how far can we go back with the beals and their sense of uh, dharma and ecology okay all right yeah that's a great question again because you actually read the book so uh, so you can come up with some really good question beals are actually uh, if you look at the indian term beals are one of the adivasi groups now mm-hmm. adivasi literally simply means adi means the uh uh primordial or yeah. uh, aborigines right the, those who were the first indigenous people on that land are called mm-hmm. as adivasi means dwellers right? yeah. the earliest dwellers so bhils of course are one of the adivasis or or our indian constitution uh, defines them as one of the scheduled tribes right mm-hmm. so these are the people that have been living inside the nature inside the forests for thousands of years thousands of years so to them uh, words such as dharma may not exist they may not be using sanskrit scriptures or sure. scriptures but this is all oral, oral everything is oral tradition for them they have their own mythological uh, narratives and legends and stories and songs and what not but the way they have been living for thousands of years are living inside the forests right so for them uh, taking care of ecology is you know it's it's not even they may not even have to say that they yeah life right they are inside the forest they must protect the forest to for their very survival that's as simple as that so 
their living forest is part of their their being they are part of the forest so so it's also interconnected without using the conscious philosophical terms like sure. ritam, dharma that's what they are like and that that is very similar to the native americans native american people in in north america south america wherever they are they are part of the south they are part of the forests and lakes and rivers and what not animals and what not so that's kind of the uh, community that that these are so when did they first get into uh, i guess prominence within the scripture i mean i, I don't i know they're not prominent within scripture but when did they when uh, the, the text when did they start becoming a uh, uh, a place where you can start talking about them in terms of what their ideas were or thoughts were. Yeah, it's very hard to pinpoint at a certain point of time when we suddenly become conscious of dharma and ecology. But what I found from anthropological study that I did with these communities, it was very similar to what is happening in the uh, in the Vishnu communities or the Swadhyay community, community uh, Vishnu and Swadhyay communities. Is that that you know India is not a environmental haven by any chance by any no. stretch uh, no. contemporary india so what we find is that you know thousands of uh, trees are, are all gone in, in 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 the villages around bhil communities but the, the interesting thing is that wherever there is a temple let's say there is a hanuman temple or a shiva temple or a devi temple around that temple there are there is a dense forest that stays intact because of the temple that is wow. found so interesting now uh, uh, some of the names of the gods and goddesses may not be using sanskrit terms sure so some, some but uh, but they do recognize that this is still form of some hanuman some shiva or some devi or or, or or whatever that connection we definitely can easily you know include them as the dharmic communities or hindu communities because they use the same uh, pantheon of hindu gods and goddesses use the local forms of those uh, pan indian or pan hindu there the ritual style is very similar and, and so on pilgrimage and everything is so similar so that is what i picked up for my book and so i took a lot of pictures as you saw in the book and oh, yeah. described that how these because of these uh, these small temples small shrines uh, some in some cases it's just a stone and in, on that stone somebody put the, some red color and start doing rituals of that that becomes a temple now because of the temple the forest uh, part you know small dense uh, piece of forest a portion of forest it remains intact around the temple so that's what i show what did uh, i mean based on your research with the with the, with the bhil community yeah. what did what, what did you think was the reason why they they kept the forest around or or even thought about connecting because of the temple because yeah, it so so what i'm saying is what was the connection with the temple and the forest why was it important for them to have a forest around the temple why because of the because all those trees now belong to the god or goddess they okay. are now once they are divine uh, trees you cannot cut them right e- even uh, while outside for uh, trees can be cut but if if the tree is part of the temple then you can no longer cut them so then it becomes a sacred grove and sacred grove is another very interesting feature across india and even across the world yeah. where because of the some temples some uh, faith in some local deities that the trees are not, are, are not cut trees are protected because of the faith in god or goddess so that is what we see in the bhil community so in, in the bhil community so the the trees in that area are sanctified by the presence of the deity uh, but other trees are 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 open season right so it's a very local kind yes. of sense yes so uh, how so in the bhil community like uh 
would there be many temples, or would there be like one central temple? And no, uh, many. There is no one central temple. There's, okay. As I said there are some versions of Shiva, some versions of Hanuman, some versions of Devi, and then get, they can be all kinds of local names, look in local languages, and there could be many many temples. Uh, around these uh, smaller uh, local gods and goddesses. So, um, I because mean, in the book you've indicated, so as they became more, uh, I mean, I guess we can use the word Brahmanized, or oh. I, I, I think that's uh, the scholarly term they use for yes. a lot of this. As they became, did, did, did their practices change or uh, from before, or or was it kind of a continuity? Uh, some parts of it in the same some things are changed as part of the what has happened what are called as the bhagat movements in the bhil communities also so bhagat movements what they did is that some local sage or local uh, uh, saintly person will come to their communities and uh, start vegetarianism or do not smoke do not consume alcohol or consumption of alcohol reduce consumption of smoking reduce the consumption of meat eating Mm-hmm. Those are kind of reformative uh, movements have appeared in the Bhil community also. So, okay. so some parts of the tradition remain the same. Some things change because of these uh, reformative ideas that have been happening for last uh, couple of centuries in the Bhil villages also. Yes. But did the ecological practices change at all from uh, that transition? Ecological practices, I think the biggest impact on all the forests across India, uh, including the Bhil villages, was the biggest uh, sort of intervention or really seismic changes that that came uh, first time was the British time. Mm-hmm. When British needed the large trees to be cut off for building the train network, that Im- impacted all the villages across India, including the Bheel villages, because it, it, they needed all the lands to lay down the uh, railroad. They need, needed all the trees to, to build the coaches. So, so that's one example of modernity as it came to India with the with the British Raj. And the train network, and then came. So in, in the modern times also, there are several debates going on even now. That should we build more roads, for example, more highways, even where there are forests, including the Bheel forests. Yeah. So if you want to build for, uh, roads, we, we, we will be cutting down some uh, trees, large trees, yes. ancient trees. So these, these modern forces have forced uh, forced upon themselves on these uh, villages where where we're losing forests. So that has impacted uh, Bhil villages also. Okay, and then I also I know there's like a a growing movement of uh, of, of conversion within the, these uh, okay. these Adivasi communities and and, and other other uh, I guess jatis across or groups okay. across the India. Um, has the influx of any of the Abrahamic faiths mm-hmm. changed their relationship, or has it maintained? Uh, not in my research, but I am reminded when you ask the question, I'm reminded of another research by, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the scholar, but the, he has done some really path-breaking research in a village in Andhra Pradesh. Mm-hmm. In Andhra Pradesh, similar to Bhil tribe, there is a Sora tribe, Sora community. Sora community is largely impacted by uh, one of the Christian sects uh, that has done uh, massive uh, proselytization-based uh, efforts in that village and converted to Christianity. And in that uh, article and even a documentary that he produced called uh, Loss of the Remembrers, which okay. means when people become Christians, in, became Christian in that, that community, they lost their connection to the na- local natural resources. 
earlier they were very uh, quite in sync with the lo local natural resources local plants flora and fauna but as they became christians they lost that connection and uh, maybe in the later on co comment section i can share the exact uh, reference uh, sure. that, that i'm forgetting the name of the scholar but but yes yeah, so that's one example when people lose their native tradition when they lose their native heritage and as they became christian uh, they lost the connection to the nature that's so I think you uh, actually touch upon this briefly in the introduction to your book mm -hmm. about uh, the different yeah, uh, philosophies of ecology and 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 how, like for example, within a certain Abrahamic faith, the, the relationship between nature and God, uh, I mean nature and man, is dictated by the by the terms of God, right? Like he says, basically the entire world is for you to use to your. Yeah. Benefit, except for, and you also point out, uh, rightly so, the, the, uh, the Assisian community, the, uh, Francis of Assisi, um, his, uh, his, his, his different philosophy towards yeah. nature. But can you, can you explain a little bit more about, like, what, why that break, I mean, if you know, uh, why that break in terms of, of, uh, cultural continuity and connection to the local environments happens when that conversion occurs? Like I mentioned already, right? For the Sora tribe example, yeah. when <clears throat> because to uh, to establish Christianity as better religion or better uh, uh, God, they have to make sure that all the faith that the local people have, that faith should not be directed towards their local plants, local mountains, local rivers, but it should be pointed only towards the Brahmic God uh, of Christianity. So that probably is, might be the reason that all their uh, uh, reverence or spiritual connection that was directed towards so many different entities in the nature yeah. now pointed towards totally different deity. So the connection, I think, really becomes weakened uh, with the natural resources because that would be a blasphemy in, in Christianity or all the Brahmic religions to say that that stone is divine or to say that river is divine or any tree is divine would be uh, against the uh, against the uh, scripture. Right. That's that could be the reason I think. You, you um, know, now that you bring it up, I think uh, an interesting point. I mean, I just thought about this is yeah. the the concept of tirtha, right, in uh um in the Hindu Jain and, and Buddhist traditions of locations across the country, which are usually I think they're they're connected to nature, right? It's like a um a, a deity, but also a part of nature. Yes. Uh, or some like it might be a river or a mountain yes. or. Or something, um, is is that something that maybe the, the, the Beals have all kind of adopted in that sense that yeah. these temples kind of like tirthas of sorts? Yeah, Do they take pilgrimages to those. For tirtha again, they don't use the heavy Sanskrit is, Sanskrit words. Yeah, yeah, no idea. But uh, of course, they're all the smaller temples or shrines are inside the on the banks of some local rivers, and and uh, and and within within deep dens inside the small local portions of the forests. So definitely, yeah, they are they are completely in harmony or in sync with their natural resources, which is uh, difficult in Abrahamic religions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now let's jump to the the beach noise, which are kind of gotten a lot of, uh, yeah. I guess, um, uh, promotion in the media, especially with the Salman Khan case, which you brought up, and then uh, and then the 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 major the founding myth of where they got really big. Can uh -huh. you explain that myth about the yes. about the, the the trees and the 340 yes. people? Yeah. yeah. But that's not the founding myth actually. But founding myth is that of their founder himself. Yes. Who lived in Rajasthan from 14 around 1451, 
his name was guru jambeshwar and when he was alive uh, when he was about 20 years of age 20 25 years of age there was a very severe drought in rajasthan for 4 5 6 years there was not a single drop of water and thousands of people animals were all dying and there were people were craving for water and what not in that uh, scenario jambeshwar he guru jambeshwar he sits on a sand dune it's all desert so in that desert he sits on a sand dune and goes on this mystical meditational mode for several days and as he comes out of that meditation he comes out with this some kind of an enlightenment experience in that he concludes that humans and natures must live in sync must live in harmony and that in, and those of his teachings then eventually become the 29 rules that he gives to anybody who wants to become his disciple they have to adopt these 29 rules they became uh, the founding principles of uh, of the bishnu community so whatever he taught uh, was preserved in his what what are called as the shabdas or the statements by guru jambeshwar and these 29 rules and uh, they are all they still worship the same hindu vishnu hindu god vishnu uh, and vishnu is uh, but hindu vishnu is worshiped here not as a not in a murti but is worshiped in a nirakar uh, as a nirakar nirgun nirakar vishnu so there is no uh, statue or idol or murti in, in any of the vishnu temples but there is there are vedic rituals right so yajna okay. and fire rituals fire vedic fire rituals are are performed uh, daily and uh, monthly uh, even annually there are some festivals when all vishnu will gather to, together at a single uh, secret uh, temple uh, which is their you know pilgrimage place so there are about 5 or 6 millions uh, of vishnu is in total in in india but so many of them will come to this uh, to this one place in rajasthan and will do their rituals together so fire plays a very very important role in vishnuvi practices but not murtis there are no so I, i in your book you mentioned like one of the rules was like like when you take wood you have to yes. check to see yes. if there's insects or not Correct. so how so how how when they do the yagnas which requires quite a bit of wood is it mostly wood that's already fallen yes yes okay dry dead wood not the green wood green wood you cannot uh, cut okay so they do okay. use ghee but uh, ghee is uh, dairy products are still very big in vishnu in almost all the hindu communities uh, and they use dead wood but they don't uh, eat meat so meat consumption is prohibited alcohol is prohibited and uh, uh, smoking is prohibited uh so in in some ways there are there are several uh, similarities jain communities so just sure. like jains they are also vegetarians and and so on yes, yes um so there's i mean aside from uh, uh guru jambeshwar there's this uh, other big uh, story or uh, I, i mean i mean historical fact i mean it's not a myth it's not a historical fact more than uh, about two centuries after jambeshwar had passed away there is another very very popular myth as you already have been alluding uh, myth of a myth or legend or historical uh, event where amrita devi was involved what happens is that the soldiers of jodhpur they need some firewood and in their zeal they they knew that if if they have to find firewood they will have to uh, they can go to the vishnu bishnoi village and they will find find it there so they rushed to this bishnoi village called uh, kejadli uh, near between jodhpur and pali uh, and they as they start cutting the this kejadli tree amrita devi rushes to the spot and she hugs this tree so soldiers in their zeal they kill amrita devi as they are cutting the tree and as amrita devi is killed uh, more than 363 men women and children they all hug different kejadli trees and they are all killed 
That's how the story wow. There's no historical evidence for this legend, for this event. Oh, there's no historical evidence. Historical evidence. But, uh, the, but the event itself is preserved very well by Vishnui folklore, Vishnui folk songs, and several, even Rajput uh, people that I interviewed, even local, uh, even local king uh, in Jodhpur, I, I, when I interviewed his people, many of them uh, did something like that must have happened. But some did, some thought that it's just a, just a made up story to, uh, to, uh, to sort of shame the Rajputs. But many of, uh, many other people agree that yes, there might have, some, something must have happened of this nature. But Vishnu people, of course, they have very carefully preserved all the names of people who actually died. So they have all 300 people's names? Yes. Oh, wow. They preserved everything, yes. So yes. these were the first, I mean, tree huggers. Like, like the first, like yes. environmental tree huggers that, yes. uh, that we have in history. Wow, that's, that's yes. really interesting. Yes. I mean, it's a, yeah. It, it, you kind of see that nowadays with people when, when, like, when they go, the natives or, or Native Americans or environmentalists, if they're about to cut down some sort of forest, they'll yeah. form a line around the tree. Yeah. And then nowadays you can't kill people like you did back then, so it's a little more, uh, 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 has a little more force today than I guess it would then back then. Yes. Yeah. So how has that story impacted the community in, in their practices and, I guess, in their... Not just that, I mean, again, again, even before that story, the life of Guru Jambeshwar itself uh, inspires them even today. So Guru uh -huh. Jambeshwar taught those 29 rules and other uh, teachings, but he also did several things in his own life. Mm -hmm. He himself planted thousands of trees. He himself uh, constructed a lot of uh, rainwater harvesting, uh, water harvesting bodies across Rajasthan. Uh, he made animal sanctuaries, constructed animal sanctuaries, bird sanctuaries, and so many other many other things that he did in his own in his own lifetime continues to inspire Vishnu people even today. So Devi, even today, Vishnu people uh, are on the forefront when any poacher or hunter when they enter their Vishnu villages, and as soon as they as, as soon as any gunshot is fired, Vishnu people will rush to the spot, catch the hunter give him uh, to the police and they will fight these long legal battles and they are at the forefront to save their local flora and fauna even today like the, like we know the case of salman khan yeah, so but they don't use violence right like if they see a they hunter violence, but they cast the people uh, whoever is the hunter or poacher yes i mean in your book you actually lay out like i think more than 10 or 12, 15 people that have been killed and trying yeah. to catch hunters or or do yeah. some Something great to protect their environment. Yes. Um, Raj and even Mahendra Singh Dhoni, one of the most popular cricketers, he was also caught by Bishnoi because he was doing some animal sacrifice uh, or something like that. Uh, and and uh, Bishnoi people were again very, uh, very active and, and he was also involved in some controversy. Even uh, recently in, in my India trip, I went to India this summer 20, 2018 and my Bishnoi friends told me that they were against fishing also in Haryana, a state called Haryana in North India. Yeah. When some people were fishing, and Bishnoi were again, uh, you know, trying to save fishers also, who have given you the right to kill fishers? So they're still they're very active. In, so are, are they? I mean, th this is a, a kind of a side question. Are they somehow connected with the Gorakshakas and stuff that we're we're seeing nowadays? I don't think so. No, no, no. that's separate controversy. That's a separate. That's, uh, that's yeah. by, I think uh, VHP and and that's uh, the separate. Okay. Uh, so with the, with the Bishnois, um, what what kind of um, practices do they do um, mm -hmm. to kind of keep their connection with the environment and so on? Uh, yes, that's a 
great question also uh vishnui actually are very uh, very similar to hindu rituals like mm-hmm. they have 16 sanskaras samskara yeah. rites of passage vishnuis have their own passage so as soon as a, a boy uh, as a, as soon as a child is born they give him a sacred water they give him some kind of a sacred water to me i think to us i think it makes sense that they are forming this connection with water or uh, nature in turn in in a way as soon as a child is born right and then um, and when he uh, the child is 7 or 8 years of age then there is another second important ritual is done when that again sacred water is used they say that to give pal pal means uh, water second mm-hmm. water is given to, to that child and formally that child is now part of the vishnu community okay right and so and then again the wedding rituals are also around uh, this kind of fire and water is used in, in all rituals fire and water are used and then and then when uh, that uh, the second ritual when seven or eight years of age at the, at the age of seven or eight when ch- child are becoming more formally vishnui they are told those 29 rules all children must know those 29 rules and they must abide by those 29 rules as much as possible there are always some few exceptions here and there you know, nobody can be perfect uh, person perfect hindu perfect muslim right. or vishnui but as much as possible they try to abide by those 29 rules in those 29 rules there are rules for not cutting green trees as you know uh, mm-hmm. not eating meat uh, right and not uh, wearing blue color uh, clothes uh not uh, take make sure that every day you must take shower and so all those rules are very uh, fresh in their mind try to keep as fresh as possible so follow those new rules and by following those rules try to be very aware and very uh, protective of your flora and fauna so do they still not wear blue even though that the the, the practice has uh... you know that's the again that, that's an ideal that's the ideal that blue color must must not be used but there might be some exception here and there uh really yes but mostly the but, I, the farmers that i saw in i have some pictures also i saw them mostly in white white robe white dhoti white kurta white shirt white turban i didn't see any anybody wearing blue actually in my because research. i mean back then the practice was involved killing insects right but now it's it's a different yeah yeah method. so yeah of course chemically you can produce blue color yeah. so they're they're farmers i guess most of them right yes so how do they find any issue with the insect killing with the farming that they do in terms because you're you're turning up the ground you're you're yeah. doing all that I'd... right okay that's a good, i'm sure there that that there might be some of course there are there might be some violence involved as you need to clear your fields and yeah. clear the grounds for the next crop and so on but good thing is that most of these villages even today are not industrialized farming right there is no monsanto or or, or those big companies you know throwing thousands of tons of <laughs> chemical fertilizers or chemical pesticides that's still not happening in th- these parts of uh, rajasthan uh-huh. so most of them are still you know uh, bullock uh, bu- using animals they use uh, animals to plow their field and uh, still very uh, you know uh traditional farming is, is still being used but uh, i cannot deny that there might be some violence involved sure in this traditional way of farming yes um and so let's talk about the last group the swadhyay the most recent okay. right they're they're yeah. like they're 20th century i mean i guess late yeah. 19th century early 20th yeah. century started um yeah. so 
the they're a huge movement, right? They're global. They're um, I've been to a few of these Swadhyaya uh, conferences. One in Anaheim when I was in college, I think uh, it was it was Anaheim Convention Center was full. It was like yeah. twenty thousand people of you know yeah. uh, mostly Gujaratis uh, yeah. who came and uh, who, who saw. Uh, I think he was he still alive at that time. The, the uh, Daji passed away in two thousand three. The founder. Yeah. Panamachi so he lived from nineteen twenty two. 2003. Yeah, so I saw him, I think 2001 or 2002. He came to Anaheim and, and there was a big group and it was, it was very nice. It was very interesting. Uh, I didn't know much about them outside from the fact that Swadhyay means self-study and, uh, and they kind of, uh, are, but they, some of them do consider they're Hindu, but they're not like fully Hindu. They're, they're, they're kind of, they consider themselves Swadhyaya. Um, okay. yeah, so, yeah, I would, I have called them Hindus. Yeah, I, I, I do too. Um, so, but I did not know that they did so much, uh, work in terms of the ecology and, and, and working on, uh, uh, I guess, um, water wells and, and tree, uh, tree sanctuaries and, can you kind of explain what they're doing and how they're doing that? Right, right. So, like Bhils and Pishnois, they're also not environmentalists. For their people, I interviewed them, many of them, and everybody said we are not environmentalists. We don't care about climate change. We have nothing to do with biodiversity or Algora and what, whatever the modern world <laughs> is going on. They are, again, they keep saying, they, they say that they are just simply devotees, bhaktas. Yeah. We are doing our bhakti, devotion, devotion to God, devotion to, they use English word God, but they, what they mean is Ishwara or, or Vishnu or Krishna, or right? The, the, the Hindu ideas. Uh, but so anything that is happening to the environment is simply a byproduct. That is not yeah. our focus. That is not our concern. We cannot fight climate change. We don't want to fight climate change. We are simply expressing our devotion to the Bhagwan, and whatever happens to the environment is simply a byproduct. So that's the constant uh, response that I got from from these people. So what they're doing as part of the devotion is they have constructed these what what we might call as new sacred groves. Sacred grove. They are not. That's not the Swadhyay term. Swadhyay people they call uh, simply Briksh Mandir. Briksh Mandir means tree temple, or, mm-hmm. or, or what, what, what we might compare it as sacred grove, because that entire entire uh, farm or entire orchard or entire uh, garden is a divine, a divine presence. That the the temp, there is no fixed temple in these uh, these kind of places, but the entire garden, entire farm is itself is divine. It's it, that itself is a temple, Briksh Mandir. It's a Mandir temple based on uh, made up of brikshas or or trees. So there is no formal ritual. But the trees are taken care of with such reverence that that trees are not only flourishing, but uh, but whatever produce that comes out of the, these trees, some mangoes or some fruits, that is also treated as prasad. Hmm. And then when, when those fruits are sold, the money that is received is treated also as divine, divine gift or divine blessing, blessing from Lakshmi. That Lakshmi is used for further philanthropic charity, spiritual work in the villages or distributed with the needy people or whatever. So that's a very beautifully they are constructing these new three temples. What Vishnu people had done and or Bhils have been doing or other parts of India are also doing sacred groves. But Swadhyayas are constructing new sacred groves without calling them sacred grove. They call them them as Vrikshmandirs. Similarly, farming is done with the same idea. Yogeshwar Krishi. Krishi done in the name of Yogeshwar. Yogeshwar is one of the names of Krishna and Gita. Yeah. Then uh, Nirmal Neer, uh, water harvesting, rain water harvesting. Again, with the idea that earth is divine, water is divine, we should preserve this divine force as much as we, as possible without letting it go waste. 
So all the water that is collected from the rain is preserved very nicely in local ponds and local uh, tanks and whatnot. And then water is, of course, is useful for the for the village. Okay. Some of these examples, yeah, such examples, yes. So, um, how, I mean, how big is the impact that uh, Swadhyay, I mean, uh, this movement has had in terms of, has there been an impact ecologically in the, in, in the villages that they do this at? Or has it kind of just, is it the same level across India? No, uh, they are mostly, uh, more densely found in Gujarat and uh, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, Mar- Gujarat, Maharashtra, then Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan and Andhra Pradesh in that order. Uh, so wherever they are uh, more in numbers, that village has definitely seen the impact. That village you, you will find much cleaner, much more unified, uh, very less social problems, uh, very less untouchability, or uh, and very nicely uh, uh, water problems are taken care of, and uh, and so on. So definitely wherever they are in more in numbers, you might find that impact. Yes, it, it's interesting because like in your book, you also mentioned the. Um, Many times, even Muslims would would come and and do things with Swadhyaya, and they would say that, like things like, you know, we we don't trust the government, we trust Swadhyaya people to to take care of us. Yeah. And, and what's the, I guess, what's the principle behind that, and then and 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 why is that occurring? It's because uh, in some ways, uh, uh, Swadhyaya people have said that uh, uh, for for Muslims and Christians, I think they have they have this message that. Uh, you can be Muslim and you can be a good Swadhyayi. You can be a Christian and you can be a good Swadhyayi. Because Swadhyayi idea is to uh, express this devotion to your chosen deity. So but, but, but what has happened is that, that several Muslims have recited, have memorized Bhagavad Gita shlokas, Bhagavad Gita verses, and they have participated in the Gita competition that Swadhyayi organizes annually. So mm-hmm. children of the age from 5 to 20. Will, will memorize these Gita verses, and in that, Muslims will also participate. Because I think at the most core of our texts, there is no really there is no boundary that you that Bhagavad Gita is only for Hindus or uh, or uh, it's not for non-Hindus. It's it's beyond those boundaries. I think it's very transcendental. All our texts and our message mm-hmm. philosophy covers the entire entire universe really, right? Brahman and idea of rhythm as we were discussing earlier. So I think Muslims have connected that idea of uh, Brahman uh, with with their own way of uh, interpreting the idea of Brahman in their own uh, native tradition. Mm-hmm. That's how they have, I don't know how exactly they've done it, but from, from that, some Muslims have participated in the Bhagavad Gita competitions and so on. Yeah. So, but um, I, I guess I guess the thing is like with, with Swadhyaya, it's it kind of goes back to their founder, right? Uh, his name is Pandurang uh, uh, it starts with an A. Atavle. Atavle, yeah. Or uh, also known as simply Dadaji. Dadaji means elder brother in Maharashtra, Maharashtri language, Marathi, Marathi language. Dada also means grandfather in Hindi language. Yeah, in Hindi, yeah. Dadaji, yeah. He passed away in 2003. His daughter, uh, called as Didi, is uh, now taking care of the movement. Uh, so what was his underlying message when it came to um, why the communities are doing, um, I guess, a Bhagavad Seva through the the nature. Bhakti, Bhakti through Kriti. Okay, so he had these two words called the Bhav Bhakti and Kriti Bhakti. Bhav Bhakti, uh-huh. emotional devotion, devotion like you can do chanting, you can uh, sing songs, bhajans for the deities. But then Kriti Bhakti, what can you do in action for your chosen deities? 
ियलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीलीली
an alternative way of thinking about yeah. uh, the, the relationship between nature and, and human beings. Because, um, I mean, everyone always thinks either, either like I said in the beginning, either you focus on nature as providing you something, so that's why you have to take care of it, or nature has to be left alone, and we have to find <laughs> boundaries around it, and so we don't be involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think this is a really yeah. interesting kind of interaction between – uh, both of those concepts, because you are kind of looking after nature, but for its own purpose, like you're treating it as divine, but you also know in the back of your head that you give to it, it gives back to you, and there's this this kind of cycle of connection that's always maintained. Yeah, Dali used to use some really interesting terms. He said that we can, like you were saying, that reminded me of Dali's quotation, that we can do upubhog of nature, the consumption of nature, we can do upyog of nature, Again, sort of higher consumption of nature, yeah. but we can do upasana of nature. We yeah. can worship divinely. We can revere the nature and still be taking some aspects of nature for our own upyog, which is consumption. Yeah. But upasana cannot be replaced with upubhog. Yeah. Upasana must go together with upyog. So very nice upubhog, upyog, and upasana that Dad used to say. What oh yeah, I think it's a it's a very great concept. I mean. Looking at India now, I mean, the Swachh Bharat movement's good. I mean, it, it, the idea is good. I don't know what it's done. I don't, I, I don't, again, with trying to, like recently that a professor just passed away from, uh, his, uh, fast, uh, over Ganga. I mean, there's so much of these traditions alive in India, yet how is India still in this state of, of total, total environmental destruction and, 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 and to be honest, filth, right? Everywhere you go, there's filth everywhere. And it, it's, it's difficult to con put those two things together and say this is the same place. Yeah, it has to be uh, a mass movement like Swadhyaya movement is a localized movement in different pockets of India. It, the, the entire country has to rise up in this movement of cleanliness that, uh, that, that, that they're, doing, they're trying to do it right now. Swachita, which means cleanliness. Uh, uh, but what I found interesting is despite all the environmental problems, especially in the big cities such as Delhi or Mumbai or Kolkata or, or Chennai also probably. Uh, Chennai I've not been in, in last several years, but Delhi, Mumbai I keep going for for number of uh, number of times I've been mm -hmm. uh, recently. But when you go out of these big cities and when you actually go to the smaller towns such as Guwahati in in Assam or Shillong in in uh, Meghalaya or or outskirts of these big cities, you still find some really clean rivers and dense forests are still intact in several parts of India. Which itself is a miracle, you know, with with uh, four times more population than American population, and with a third of the land size, less than one fourth land area. Yeah, in America, still people are living in in uh, you know relatively uh, still there's this harmony and there's still India remains one of the topmost hotspots of biodiversity with all the pressure from 1.25 billion people in India. Yeah, you still see. Only place in Asia where you can find rhino, rhino, rhinoceros or lions or tigers are in India. That's <laughs> true. I mean, China, that is very true. That with China, it's all gone. It's, it's much of the flora and fauna, especially animals. I don't think there are rhinoceros or lions, tigers. They're all gone. Uh, or just cross the border and go from India to Pakistan. In my research, wherever Vishnu people are in Rajasthan desert on the border of India Pakistan, so black bucks are very sacred, very important for Vishnu people. Uh -huh. But if you just cross the border and go to Pakistan, black bucks are all gone, wiped out. 
really thing and meat eating and what not they are wiped out in pakistan same, it was the same land before 1947 but because of the india's tradition of non violence vegetarianism people like bishnois and swadeshis and beans and so on you still find the animals are intact lions are still intact tigers tigers are actually increasing in numbers in india they are i, I read that because yes. there are several other tribes that nobody has researched i'm not researching so there are several tribes that live in the forests with tigers there are still communities that live with lions in gujarat and with tigers in madhya pradesh and and so on and elef- with elephants in, in in bengal because of these people who have this in- intrinsic connection with local flora and fauna yeah and this such a such an interesting uh, civil country civilization culture that still coexists with its nature that's true so the filth does uh, disgust us right delhi mumbai and what not but if you go and look at look for these example you can still find them no i, I mean I, i think you're right you know like i've been to like you know uh the foothills of himalayas and uh-huh. if you go a little bit higher it's pristine beautiful clean yes. it's it's very nice it's just uh it's a little jarring because you have to go so far outside yes. of so these areas example of ganga right ganges or ganga ganga yeah. river is pretty polluted in in city like kanpur in in uh, in uh, up or uh, or, uh, or or lower plains areas right but if you go just go little higher of uh, upward from rishikesh onwards exactly. that's it your whole but beautiful ganga keeps changing continues to change and higher and higher i travel all the way from Uh, Kolkata to uh, to Gangotri, where Ganga yeah. starts. I've I've traveled almost entire stretch of Ganga, and I have some like like you mentioned. I have some really great memories of seeing Ganga in its most pristine condition, Gangotri and Rishikesh and Rudraprayag and and so many other prayags and and so yeah. on. That uh, that when we when anybody says Ganga is totally polluted, that's not true. <laughs> that's that's not, not true. No, it's eight percent is polluted and heavy. Yeah, you can nobody can deny. But 80% is still intact. Just go and visit Gangotri. Go and visit Vishikesh. Go and visit. Oh, absolutely! So I've been to Gangotri. It's beautiful. So Gangotri is amazing. It, it's it was a really, but you know, I think a lot of times, even in our texts, they talk about like rules of Socha, right? Where where you should build uh, yes. uh, cities, and then where you should go to, uh, defecate. You know, uh, what part of the stream you should do it. it it's a very. Definitely. I mean. I think there's like this sense of cleanliness in, in, inherent within these traditions. There are three problems. Three P problems of three P's. Population, yeah. such a massive number of people, and there's not enough place for for sanitation or hygiene or, or right. So that's the one problem. Population itself. Second is plastic. Yeah. Plastic is a gift of modernity, and when you consume plastic, you have to throw it somewhere, and that 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 garbage ends up. Ends up in our rivers, which is yes. a tragedy. And third is pollution. Yeah, it's another gift of modernity. With all the <laughs> industries, leather industries, you have to throw that sewage, and that sewage goes into water, into rivers. Water. That's another tragedy. We have to, and hopefully, government is trying to install more sewage treat, treatment systems that will hopefully take care of this sewage coming out, coming out of these industries, and hopefully, it will be less and less uh, pollution going directly into the rivers. But until we really keep it as a mass movement across india it's a, it should be a national movement uh, these things will continue to happen tragically it still happens yeah. we cannot do yeah yeah um so i think this is a a really good conversation we we had about this this yeah. these topics i i i i know it's getting uh, almost the hour and a half now yeah. uh, so i was i was like maybe we can uh 
go, couple more questions and then we can we can close off. Yeah. So what I would like to do is uh, I do want to talk about Jainism, but what I want to do is maybe I think a good good thing to, we can do is maybe during Parosin we can have you come and speak about Jainism on the whole and yeah. and expand it a little bit better. Except I, no, I think let's do a separate uh, yeah podcast on Jainism. We can do that. Yes. So what are you working on now? Right now I'm doing three big projects. One is uh, I'm editing the Encyclopedia of Hinduism, in which scholars from across the world are contributing their articles on different ideas of Hinduism right. across time, across space. Uh, second is I'm editing a, a volume uh, in which I'm collect, uh, collecting chap- chapters from different scholars on Indian theories of religion. That's my second project. Third is a monograph. I'm writing a, the history of Hindus and Jains in North and South Americas. These are well, the that's interesting. I mean, all three sounds fascinating. Um, I, I think I, I, I would like to hear more a little bit about the the, the second project that you're working on, the the, um, the theories of religion in yeah. India. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, can you give us a little bit of a, a preview here? <laughs> it's a separate one. It's going to be quite detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Different categorizations and so on. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, I, I mean, I think uh, other than that, it was a good conversation. If you have any – uh, actually, what I want to ask you is, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the organization that you started and yeah. who's involved and what the purpose of that is? American Academy of Indian Studies uh, is a network of scholars across the world who are interested in uh, uh, developing Indic ideas of philosophies and uh, different ideas of uh, Indic ideas of history, Indic ideas of economics, political science, and so on. So we are still working on it. We started a new journal uh, just last spring, also connected with this uh, new organization, and so we're still in in our early stages of developing and doing conferences and and so on. So who's involved with it uh, on on this project with you? Lavanya Vemsani is the chief editor of the journal that we started, uh, and then there are Professor Jeffrey Long from uh, Pennsylvania, Professor Arvind Sharma in Canada, and many many other scholars in India. Oh, excellent! Yes, yes, yes. That's great. I mean, I I, I would I I love to see more output from you guys and and read more and. Uh, yeah, but thank you for your time, Dr. Jane. I, I really appreciate it. Um, if there's anything else that you want to plug or you, you want to talk about uh, um, your websites or where they can reach you or... You can uh, easily find my website on, if they just Google for Pankaj Jain uh, and UNT or Pankaj Jain uh, Religion Ecology or Hindu, Hinduism and Ecology, Dharma and Ecology, you can find. My book is uh, easily available on Amazon.com uh, in yes. India or, or here. Uh, and uh, that can be found, uh, and one can get uh, that way. And uh, Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities, and uh, and we'll we'll talk more on different ideas, different. Absolutely. More. So thank you for your time today, um, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Yeah. You too. Take care. Bye. Goodbye.